Today's scripture is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, I did wear a tie today, and uh, everyone's making comments, which must mean I look like a slob the other times. But it is our five-year anniversary. I figured if I'm going to wear a tie, I would for the anniversary of Jesus' bride here in Marysville. Um, Though, I wonder if I wore a tie on my anniversary for my wife last year. But, you know, whatever. So, that's why I'm wearing a tie. You won't see it very often. Now, five years ago, um, this church began... And uh, it really had begun uh, in my house uh, many months prior to that. And then we graduated to the garage, which was really cultish and weird because it was all lined with black plastic and lawn chairs were in there. And it was just like, hey, let's preach and sing. And it was odd. Um, And then 2006, really November 4th, which was Friday, um, we launched publicly at Allen Creek Elementary School. uh, Just a hop, skip, and a jump uh, over that direction. So today we are uh, five years old plus two days, which means uh, we're uh, potty trained, uh, we're probably just learning to read, and we're about to lose our first tooth. So we're young, we know it as a church, and that brings both good things, because we're a little innocent, naive of things, and uh, maybe some bad things, because we really don't know what we're doing half the time. So it's a joy uh, to be here, though, uh, in the first Five years, as I've just really reflected, and uh, sometimes I even have shed a few tears uh, over it, um, we've experienced a lot of undeserved blessings, quite frankly, uh, because, honestly, we don't know what we're doing half the time. Um, We've had a lot of unwanted sufferings, uh, experienced some pain, and we have certainly had many, many unexpected changes, um, which I guess change oftentimes is always Unexpected, But as we've matured and we've gone through different seasons of uh, beautiful growth, uh, when you go from, you know, basically two people to ten people to, you know, uh, a few more than that, it's a joy. So we've had incredible growth, and that's not just in numbers, but it's the gospel going deeper, seeing families transformed, seeing people fall in love with Jesus, and, and it's beautiful. Uh, we've also had seasons of really ugly pruning where uh, when things are big and, and glorious and, and fruitful, then you go, okay, snip, snip, snip. And God's pruned us at times, and it's been ugly and painful, and, uh, but we've always been stronger as a result, which all pruning does. Uh, we've had seasons of great joy and laugh, uh, just, you know, just, just uh, laughing at ourselves and, and, and being uh, joyful for what for God has done. And we've had, again, seasons of sorrow where we have prayed over uh, family members who are struggling with cancer. We have uh, seen members uh, die. Um, We have seen um, marriages uh, broken. Um, So we've had those times of sorrow within the family. And then we've had those seasons where, you know, things have just like crystal clear clarity, like we know exactly where we're going, we know what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we're doing it. And then there's those times, you know, quite honestly, where things are really confusing 
And uh, I'd like to say that, you know, the pastors know all the time what's happening, but, you know, it's chaotic sometimes, and it's, and it's confusing sometimes, and I'm okay with that, um, but, it's, uh, but it's hard. But one thing that, is, that has always been beautiful, that has always been consistent, that I pray will always uh, be uncompromising and will never change, is uh, to be as Paul was when he wrote the uh, First Corinthians, or the Corinthian church, in First Corinthians 2, he said that, he had come to them not proclaiming uh, to them the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so my prayer is that that's what we do. And so we're going to continue to do that today on what is the 260th sermon uh, preached at our church, not all by me. Um, and we're going to talk about Jesus again. And... We have to ask ourselves, people will you know, wonder, like, why, why talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ every week for five years? And uh, I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you that if you ever come in here and we're not talking about Jesus, you should raise your hand, not in the middle of service, but figuratively, like, there's a problem. We believe certain things, and so let me just be frank. First, we believe that there is more to this life, more than just living and dying. Secondly, we believe that there is a holy, good God who loves us. We believe that deeply. Third, we believe that we were created. Here's the big answer to the question your kids all want to know. Maybe you want to know. We were created to worship Him. We were created to be with Him. And we believe that it's not difficult to do when you actually enjoy Him. And it's very natural for us to praise the things that we enjoy. But we also believe that sin made it and makes it hard to enjoy God. And we believe that sin caused and causes men to hate their Creator and, in fact, to enjoy creation so much that they begin to worship it. And they actually become enslaved to it. But we also believe that the death of a certain person named Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, a small city just outside of Galilee that was not too impressive, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, a perfectly sinless man, when he died on a cross 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans because of the tongues of the Jews and some others as well, We believe that his death changed everything. And we believe that you never, ever, 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 ever outgrow the need to hear the news of what Jesus has done to bring us back to the God who loves us. Now, we believe then, and this is why for 260 times, that the preaching of who Jesus is, and what He did mysteriously, and it is mysterious, powerfully and irresistibly draws us into a deeper love with God. That proclamation of Jesus, the words that are coming out have power to transform us, that the grace that is in the gospel actually changes us through that. That's why we preach Jesus. Now, 
I looked back five years ago to see what was I actually preaching on five years ago. Um, I'd gone through the first Sunday, and so I saw that I was on this day preparing to preach my second sermon as I prepared my English lessons for uh, the week as well. Um, and it was on the first letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church in, the, um, in Galatia. And it's the letter of Galatians, and the letter was written probably uh, under 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So very close to uh, the time um, of the resurrection of Christ. And in Galatians 1 that I was preaching on, similar to Colossians chapter 2 that I just preached on, Paul is astonished, he's shocked, he's surprised. And he writes to these guys and he says, Why have you jettisoned the truth? Why have you turned your back? And he's shocked. Why have you, have you turned from trusting in the grace of God and the holiness of Christ and turned toward trusting in, and hoping in earthly religion and the appearance of holiness? Why would you do that? And we see that pursuing spirituality, whatever that might look like, apart from Christ, has actually been a problem for Christians for over 2,000 years. What we're preaching today, what we preached last week, is the same things that Paul was dealing with 2,000 years ago. It's as if we haven't quite learned yet, or that sin seems to attack us in the same ways. And for those 2,000 years of churches coming and going, we've seen more than one pastor prove how easy it is to build a church, a very big church, many big churches, that are rooted and based and centered on the shadows of spirituality that Paul talked about last week versus the substance who is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing I want as we continue on the next five years, the last thing I want is to have a church that has a ton of morality without Christ or incredible cultural popularity or coolness, or bigness without Christ. Or to have visions and spiritual experiences and all these things that aren't intrinsically evil, but they are if they're without Christ. What we want is Christ and God willing for however amount of time Christ gives us. Because I don't necessarily believe He builds churches and He kills churches in His timing and good pleasure. And so, whatever amount of time Jesus gives us, I pray that, that Damascus Road is, is not a church that's known primarily for its rock-solid theology, though that's a good thing, that it's not known primarily for its awesome programs, its ministries, or kids' ministry, youth ministry, its whatever, that it's not known primarily even for its loving service to the community, but it's known primarily for its deep devotion to Christ. Those things will come, but you must have Christ. Now, the question is, how do we make sure that happens? Individually and as a church. Like, how do we stay centered? How do we not get off track? How do we know Christ more? What's that look like? Now, Paul has been dealing with guys who've been told, you know, yay, you've got to fill up and do these other things. That's how you get to know Christ. And so, 
having told us what we're not to do, which is what we talked about last week, he's now going to begin chapter 3 and start laying out, this is what it looks like. This is what you do. And he begins there in verse 1. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Paul begins in a way that we might just kind of read by and not stop and pause. But he begins by reminding the Colossians that remember who you put your faith in. And specifically that they've, been, they've died and they've been raised with Christ. And we talked about this and we, we spoke about baptism and that, that act of obedience that symbolically represents exactly what's happening internally. You are buried with Christ and you are raised again to walk in the newness of life. And Romans 6 says that through that experience, you are united with Christ. You are connected with Him in a way that's deeply intimate. Our relationship with Christ is supposed to be like no other. Closely united. Raised with Him. In His final prayer... Jesus, before on the night he was arrested, before he was led to be crucified, in John chapter 17, he has a really long prayer. And it's, you could probably preach ten sermons out of it. At the very end of it, here's what he says. In John 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only. Speaking about his disciples, he actually prays for future disciples, which would be us. But also for those who will believe in me through their word that they, all these people, may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now, Whatever all of that means theologically, which is, it's deep. With the one and in us, and it's clear, regardless of whatever it means, that there is a deep intimacy intended here. A deep connection. Now, the church in Ephesians and elsewhere is called the Bride of Christ. And we know that in marriage, from Genesis chapter 2, that when you get married, you become one flesh with somebody. An intimacy that is, it can't get any deeper. You become one and the same. Now, I like to think our relationship with Christ as like a marriage. Now, it's silly to say, but our relationship is not with an idea. Our relationship is not with some mystical force. Our relationship is with a person. Think about how you study that person, how you pray to that person. Sometimes it's almost as if we're praying at a routine to a machine. We're talking about a person, a living person that we are engaging with. Now, to make an analogy, I have been married for 16 years to a person. 17 years in May. Kaylin, my, my bride, was my high school sweetheart. Uh, so we've known each other for 20-ish years. Known her more than I've known anyone else, really, for that length of time. 
more time has been spent with her now, as we've kind of crossed over that time frame, than I've spent even with my own family. Now, 16 years, I have learned a ton about this person. Uh, more than I ever thought was ever there. In fact, the person that I married 16 years ago is a little bit different than the person I thought I married, in a very beautiful and good way. But there are things that, that I have discovered in her that I never knew were there. Now, I want to know this person. For 16 years, I've wanted to know this person. And as I get to know her and, and really dig into who she is, man, there's some things that just surprise me. They're just, they're shocking sometimes. And they're silly sometimes. And they're scary sometimes, right? There's, there's some things that are, that are beautiful, some things that are dark, but you get the full pictures after 16 years of, of looking at this person, beholding them. I know a lot about this person. I know more about her than anyone else knows about her in this world. And I know more about her than I know anyone else in this world. And hopefully she could say the same about me. We have intimacy. An intimate relationship. And intimacy is intriguing. It's intriguing as you're like, man, what am I going to find next year? Like, I mean, what, what new thing comes into life and suddenly you go, wow, what, like the strength, like when kids came in, like, man, things came out that I never knew were there. Suffering comes in, I never knew that was there. Something just fun and enjoy, like, I didn't even know you enjoyed that. Intimacy is intriguing. Intimacy is a bit unpredictable. I can't plan all the things that, that like, whoa, right? Intimacy is powerful, because the more I know, I know her, this is, this is the amazing thing. And if you've been married for any length of time, you know this. Intimacy, uh, the, the deeper level of intimacy you have, the more I, I begin to understand how she'll respond before she has to say anything. Like, everyone has, like, their, their looks, right? Like, you know, like, you screwed up look, or, um, you know, you, uh, that's never going to happen look, or, you know, stuff like that where... Where you just know as you're sitting there, you look over like, this is not going well, right? I am making a fool of you in front of all these people. And there's code, like we have code words. Like we have got little code words. I don't know if you, if you've, this is going to be, this is going to be like, you watch that movie. Okay, if you ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, right? There's a, there's a scene where this wife is uh, with her husband and this guy's trying to sell her Tupperware. And uh, he's, you know, Uncle Rico's trying to say, hey, look, you know, this is so strong. Go ahead and see if you can, you can stretch this, right? And so she, he grabs and he's like, you know, just like, and she looks at him like, this just look of disdain, like, how could you ever not, oh, you are such a pansy type of thing. So we've got that, like, code word, Tupperware. Like, you know, if we just, like, she, like, gave me a look like, Yo, Tupperware, hey, you give me the Tupperware look like, you idiot, what are you thinking right now, right? You got code words, you got tones, like I understand tones. How are you doing? Fine. Oh, that's not a fine tone. That's a, you better ask me right now what's going on tone, because otherwise it's going to get real bad tone, right? But we have such intimacy. I can be apart from her and go, gosh, maybe should I? And I know 
what she's thinking without her even being there. She's like, you know, the little wife on the shoulder type of thing, like, you know what you should be doing here. And I know if I've done something and I come home that I shouldn't have done, I know, you know, how she's going to feel about it. I just, we know each other. I know how she's going to respond. I know, like, what she loves and what she doesn't love and, and all these things because I've spent time digging into her and knowing her. 16 years full of it. When we were first dating, right, it's easy in romance stage. You're like, I'm like a hunter with weapons and, like, nets. And, you know, I'm like, whatever it's going to take, I'll set the traps, right? Like, you know, and she comes in. It's like, oh, and you caught her, right? Then you get the ring on your finger, and yeah, got my prey. A lot of relationships stop right there. Right? She's trapped. Got her. But no, I, that's when I became a student. Let's learn more. I want to know exactly. So, like, she's not a big, like, flowers, yeah, they're okay, but there's certain things, acts of service for her are huge. Like, she would rather have me mow the lawn and take care of the garden than ever give her a box of chocolate. Though she'll take the chocolates. She would like those, right? But that's what she likes. So you begin to understand and know this person and delight in this person because of your knowledge of this person. And I can say, without, without blinking, without trying to like put on a show like, like, hey, yeah, your pastor's got all... I can say without doubt that I have complete contentment and joy and satisfaction in my marriage. I love this woman. I trust this woman. I want to know more about this woman. Now, sadly, though I've had 16 years of pure awesomeness, right? And it's not like everything's wonderful. There's painful times, but it always ends up awesome because we we change and we grow from it. But though we've had 16 years of that, I know that a lot of people haven't got past the first 16 days. Like day 16 is like, yep, got all I need to know. And that there's a lot of, of marriages that have no intimacy, that have no curiosity, that have no pursuit, that have no exploration of the, of the heart. That, that the whole purpose of your relationship is just, I just need to get through the day not piss her off and do anything wrong, right? And he's like, I, you know, she's like, well, I just want to make sure he doesn't do anything. You know, I don't want to set him off. And then that's like the whole, that's your, that's your life. The relationship ends up being really just kind of taken for granted. And you kind of just like hope it just maintains itself, which it won't. And I think worse is you assume you know everything about that person that you know all there is to know, and you become kind of relationally apathetic. And so, obviously I'm going to make this connection with Christ. And I, I wrote my sermon probably three times this week, and this is the one that actually I felt was actually honest. Because I think a lot of our relationships with Christ, if we begin to think of it as this, this marriage to Christ, this is where Paul goes. He tells the Colossians, you, you, man, you were raised with him. You were united with him. You're married to him. And he's, this, you need to seek him. Seek the things that are above. He uses things that are above, and we'll talk about that, that where Christ is. And seeking is, is an intentional act of the will. It doesn't just happen. It's an intentional 
to pursue something. And in this case, it's, it's someone. And seeking means, I mean, use whatever synonyms you want. It means searching, exploring, and investigating. And it's not in, gosh, I, I, I hope I find something. It is with the expectation to obtain what is there. What you know is there. And in this case, it's the heart of God in Christ. This kind of seeking, I think, describes someone who, who they're content, but they're not complacent. They are wanting and desiring to know more, to find more, to understand more, that they might enjoy more. They're not assuming they know everything there is to know because of a couple verses, because they can say, Jesus died for my sins. They want to go deeper. I mean, I think a lot of us are, are married to Christ, if you will, but we're not in love with Him anymore. Not in that way. We kind of like Him. But we're not in love with Him. We prayed that prayer. We put the Jesus ring on our finger. And then once kind of the romance and the thrill kind of went away and life came, sometimes it's just, you know, the distractions of life, the difficulty of life. I think if you're honest, at some point, as you were going through life, the romance died and you looked over at your Savior and you were just kind of like, who are you? I know you, you saved me, and you died for me, and I don't know if I really know who you are. And you have zero intimacy with Christ because the truth is you've spent zero time getting to know him. And suddenly, because of that, like any marriage, a lot of suitors start looking really good. You start paying attention to them. I, I just think we need to be captivated again. And I think this is where Paul, his heart is, to be captivated by Christ. So the question is, like, how do we do that? Like, what, when we, we look for these things that are above, what, how, do, how, do we, how do we begin to know Jesus? Well, I just, it's really simple. You start to look at him. And I don't mean just look at him. I mean, really, look at him. And I'm also not talking about looking at him through sermons, not books, or what other people have to say about Jesus. I mean looking at Jesus himself. You know, think about like if, if I wanted to get to know my bride and I went to her friends, well, tell me about her. What's she like? And I go to her and say, hey, you know, I've been told that. That's not knowing her. Or if I say, hey, I, I read this book, told me exactly how you think, so now I'm going to do this because this is what the book... No, it doesn't make any sense. I, I want to know her. I'm going to ask her. I'm going to delve into her heart. Tell me your hopes. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your fears. How do you feel about me? What do you want? What do you like? You've got to go directly to Christ because he is a person. He is living. He is active. He is speaking. We're to pursue him with, with curiosity, 
We're to pursue him with discipline. We're to pursue him with joy. And we're to stop assuming we know everything there is to know about God. And we are to start exploring the riches. The Bible talks about the riches of Christ constantly. The riches of not only who He is, but what He did. And where do we look? Well, we look in the place where He has told us about Himself. And we look intentionally and vigorously and enthusiastically for the things above in His Word, praying that the Spirit will teach us who He is. See, we're not, we're not searching the Bible for a bunch of moral principles to live by. They're there and they're good. But that's not what we're doing to make our lists and set up our legalisms and adopt our practices. Paul says we are to look at the things that actually transform, which is Christ himself. Christ is the one that said, by the way, the whole Bible's about me. And so we are looking in here to know him. Not so you feel good or someone else feels good about how you do your devotions. It is to know this person, to pursue Christ, and to learn about who he is. And the reason why is because that's the thing that actually changes you. That's where the power of transformation lies. Not in lists, not in moralities, not in traditions. Paul's been hard on this. It lies with Christ. Let me prove it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul wants us to look at the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He is the greatest of all things and the fulfillment of all things. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 says this, Now the Lord is spirit, there is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. I love the word beholding. It's a constant. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same... So we're beholding the glory of Jesus. And as a result, being transformed into the same image. We are looking like Jesus as we behold Him from one degree of glory to another. And for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul says, as we behold Christ, we look at Christ, we seek Christ, we begin to look like Christ. Now, when we behold Jesus, when, okay, Sam, when I'm looking at Jesus, what am I looking at exactly? Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. When we're looking at Jesus... We are looking at everything you and I are meant to be. Okay? Now let me explain. According to Genesis chapter 1, everything can be understood with Genesis 1 through 3, right? Genesis chapter 1, men, mankind, was uniquely created in God's image. And according to Isaiah chapter 43, specifically verse 6 and 7, The Bible says that we were created for the purpose of bringing glory to God. We talk about that often. Why did he create all this? To bring him glory. Now, 
We were, what's that all mean? We were uniquely designed to represent and to reveal God. His nature, His character, His wisdom, His beauty in how we lived. But, Genesis chapter 3, men sinned. Men rejected what God said. His word. They rebelled against His rule. They blew through the boundary that He had set. We missed God's mark. We fell short of God's glory. And the fall shattered that image within us. It didn't disappear. It's like a mirror that's been shattered, right? You can still see something, but it's distorted. So the image didn't disappear, but it became deformed. And any reflection of the image of God now fell short of His glory. And we no longer accurately represented Him. We couldn't. We were a shattered mirror. There was not a clear picture anymore. And not only that, we no longer even wanted to enjoy or be with Him. We loved our sin. We pursued our sin. Found new ways to sin. Encouraged others to sin. But in our sin, in our sprinting away from God, He pursued us and loved us. And Jesus, the Son of God, everything that Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, the song about who Jesus is, our Creator, Creator of all things, the Ruler of all things, the Recreator and Sustainer of all things, entered into creation and took on human flesh. And for 30 years, as relative nobody, didn't come as a king, came as a carpenter's son, fairly impoverished from a really unpopular city. But for 30 years, Jesus fully and flawlessly reflected the image of God that Adam was supposed to. Scripture calls Christ the second Adam because he perfectly reflected the glory of the Father. So much so he could tell his disciple Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Perfectly reflecting in every way and showing us not only God, but a picture of sinless humanness. In Him, in Christ, we see what God intends all human beings to be in their relationship to God, in relation to themselves, in their relationship to one another, even in their relationship to creation. And this is where it gets amazing. We're not beholding the one who simply came and set a really good example or gave some really good advice on how to live and then said, good luck. By the way, look how awesome I am. That's what you're supposed to be. Have fun. And then left. That's not what he did. What he did in the most amazing, radical ways, not show only how infinitely lovely he is. He showed how infinitely loving he was because what he does as I behold Christ, as I put my faith in Christ, I stand before God right now, holy. He takes 
all of my sinless sinfulness. And he gives me all of his righteousness. He takes all the deformed image that I have worked hard to try and reflect. And he says, nope, falls short, weak, broken. He goes, here, perfect. And he gives it to me. He gives me his righteousness and takes away my brokenness. And so when I behold Christ, because of him, I stand before God innocent, forgiven, defended, approved, holy, and blameless. Like an heir, like a son. And as I behold Christ, as I study Him, and as I look at Him from from every angle, my love for Him grows. And I begin to see not only His loveliness, but the incredible, gracious, radical love He has for me. And we seek it. And we look for it. We don't assume we understand all of it. And we get blown away by it. And when you finally begin to recognize those pieces, you can't just like, okay, I found it, and walk away. It says, you've got to set your mind on the things that are above. Not just seek them. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We've got to carve those truths in our foreheads. Just keep them beholding in front of us. Why? Because the hardness of life, and sometimes the easiness of life, makes me forget. I start to believe that other things are more lovely. I begin to believe that I'm not loved. I begin to feel weak. I begin to feel accused again. I begin to feel ashamed for what I've done again. I begin to be fearful again because I haven't set my mind on Christ. I set my mind on Jesus, who the Bible says he is and what the Bible tells me he did. And then when I feel weak, I know he is strong. And when I feel accused, I know he has declared me innocent. And when I feel ashamed, I know that he has forgiven me. And when I am fearful, I know that he has been victorious over anything, conquered every enemy, that I need fear nothing. Because he says, nothing ever can separate you from my love. Nothing. What about this? No. So Paul says it's not enough to seek. We've got to set our minds on the truths that we find. We've got to meditate on them. We've got to center our daily life on them. It's not enough to celebrate the beauty of your spouse, if you will, the joy of your marriage, if you will, once a year on an anniversary. Oh, by the way, I love you. It's not even enough to do it once a month or once a week. It is a daily thing. And it's a beautiful thing. The gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he did, is intended to saturate our thinking and and captivate our affections. We've got to constantly behold his loveliness and his love. And many of us, I I think, actually will, will believe that we do. I think a lot of us, this just hit me this week. We're sitting in my fight club talking about this. 
I think a lot of us will, will try and defend ourselves. We're like, well, I think about Jesus all the time. Really? Answer this question, not out loud. But answer this question. How would your life look any different if you stopped thinking about Christ as much as you do right now? My greatest fear is that my life wouldn't look different at all. And if you're missing the logic on that, that's not a good thing. The fact is that a lot of us do not, most of us do not, set our minds as Paul would have us on Christ. And if we stopped doing like we think we do, our lives would look exactly the same, and that's not good. Our relationship with Christ is supposed to be, honestly, one of concentration, not just convenience. It's supposed to be one of of joyful devotion, not just some kind of reluctant duty. Imagine having a marriage like that. We're supposed to organize our lives in order to know Christ and to make Him known. Not organize our life and go, you know what? i got a spot for you, Jesus, right there. Again, imagine doing that with a relationship like a marriage. All right, honey, I established everything that's important and valuable in my life, and I probably squeeze you in on Tuesdays for like an hour. Relationally, that's the end of your relationship, even if you're positionally still married. In every situation, we are to know the Lord so intimately We are to think about His grace so constantly that we concern ourselves with what Jesus thinks about the decisions we make, big and small. We are supposed to wonder, think about, ponder what He thinks about what I'm doing, what He likes, what He wants, what He has said is right and wrong. Not just religious stuff, our lives. And I don't want to characterize our faith as this intellectual exercise of the mind. We're like, oh, just, you just got to think. It's power of positive thinking. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the importance and the role of the mind in loving the Lord. This is not a matter of measuring your faith by you know, the spiritual moments or how much you've wasted your time and things like that. This is simply about living a life of intention. It's about actively directing what is going to shape your life. And that every moment, not just one moment. The truth is that we are very easily, and Paul warns against this, naturally captivated by the things of the earth. That's our default mode. If we do nothing, that's where our mind will go. And some of these things, honestly, are what we might consider important, like family, like um, careers and our job and our employment, uh, even some of our religious traditions. You know, we'd, we'd say, well, these things are important, and we'd carve out time for those. Some of these things that captivate us that are earthly are really trivial, like sports. I mean, how much time people spend following certain sports teams and spending time on fantasy games and things of that nature. Or technology. 
And again, and I've said this before, it's not that it's not that these things are intrinsically evil. But what happens is we begin to seek these things, and we begin to set our mind on these things and devote our time and our energy and our resources to them. We begin to, to fantasize about them, talk about them, think about them constantly in a way that overwhelms and overshadows the rest of our lives. And again, these things aren't intrinsically evil, but the problem becomes when we find them more lovely than Jesus. And even more loving than Jesus. Like we get joy, recognition, validation from these things. And let's be honest, in our overstimulated culture, where you have access to just about anything you could ever want anywhere in the world all the time, it's very difficult to keep your mind focused. It's incredibly difficult. It reminded me of that dog on the movie Up. Right? Doug? I love Doug. I want a dog like Doug. Right? And Doug is this, this stereotypical dog. Is like, oh, master. I love you, master. Just like, you know, he's just love. He's just drooling and wagging his tail. Just throw me the ball, please. You know? Just enjoying his master. And I know it's hard for us to think of us as a dog and Christ as the master, but just for a second, look at the person of Doug and go, how much he just like, i just like to be with you. I'll, I'll throw, throw the ball, I'll go wherever you want, right? I'll do it, roll over, okay, right? He just, just is engulfed with his master, and then there's those moments, oh yeah, squirrel, <laughs> where it's just shut off completely. We're something, and we're like that constantly. We have to fight against that. We're like, oh, man, you, man, master, you're just awesome. But squirrel, squirrel, what? Yeah, oh, this is really interesting, though. And it's, a, it's a battle. It's not easy. But I don't want to fight, like, hide behind our theology and be like, well, you know, we just, God's in control of it. Come on! You can set your mind. You can seek it does take work to keep focus. And if you don't focus on Christ, you're focusing on something that honestly has no power and could possibly enslave you. In order to make sure that we're constant, we have to be renewing our minds. Romans 12, very famous verse for this, says, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's our default but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Renewal comes from immersing yourself in the words of God, in the truth of God, in the person of Christ. Not so you can check the box, not so you can get the gold star on the chart, it's so you can know God. That is why we devote ourselves to the Word. This is the means by which He has said, I am revealing myself to you. Imagine a relationship where you're doing all these things with your bride or your husband, and you're like, every time you do something loving and you spend time with them, you're like, star up. I'm going to have a deep conversation with you, honey. Why? Because it's my duty. And you sit down, and you're like, uh-huh, okay, thanks. Can I, can I put a star up on the chart now? Because I gave you 15 minutes. 
That's not the kind of intimacy we're talking about where you sit down and you're like, I want to know you. I am actually authentically curious about who you are. That's the same with Christ. To know who he is. And it takes, I believe, discipline. Sometimes in the beginning it's progressive. It takes more discipline than others. And sometimes in life it comes back and it takes more discipline because of the distractions. But you have to be convinced in your mind that that is where the joy is. That is where the change is. The reality is this. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot expect renewal and transformation when you spend 10, 15 hours on and three minutes with Christ. Don't expect it. I don't even know what your blank is. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad about the different things you do, but the reality is your mind, your heart, your life is transformed through beholding Jesus. And if you spend 15 hours on and three minutes with Jesus a week, good luck. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We'll close it down with Paul concluding and reminding us that you've left your bachelor life behind. Things have changed. He says in the last two verses, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To close us out, we must all come to the conviction that our old life is gone. That your old life of sin, your old life of desires, your old hopes, your old ways, your old plans for how you are going to do things for your own glory. Gone. Dead. And you must become convinced that that's a good thing. That leaving Egypt was actually a positive. And the fact is that God has rewritten your story. He has rewritten your story in Christ. You have a new history, a new identity, a new trajectory. Your past no longer defines who you are. Your weaknesses no longer have the power to govern you. Your fears of the future are no longer. Your future doesn't have to scare you. And the completed story of your life, right? The beauty that is you, the glory that is you, the perfection that is you, it'll never be seen here. That's the catch. It will never fully be revealed here. I mean, this is not Sam. Man, if you saw Sam 2.0, Christ version, boo! Good, huh? It's perfect. It's glorious. No weaknesses, no suffering, perfectly humble. I mean, it's like awesome. And Christ right now has that for me, securely, safely, to be revealed someday fully. Peter says it this way, there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the pow- God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed the last time. Someday I will see, you will see, version of, oh man, you look good, Right? Perfect, glorious, in all your perfection that is the image of God perfectly reflected as Christ did. 
And though it's, it's never going to be seen here, and you won't see it till you die or when Christ returns, Christ is your life right now. Right? You know, we don't just, as I said, let go and let God. There is work to set and to seek Christ. And, and as you begin to do that, as you begin to delight in the loveliness of Jesus and love Jesus for how, responding to how much he's loved you, we begin to see glimpses of that restored glory that's dwelling right now in your heart come out. That is how it comes out. It's kind of like what happens when you see a bride who is loved by her husband. Where the husband's love for this bride makes her more beautiful. She starts to glow. She's got a joy. She's got an excitement. She has a security. She knows how, and you begin to see her changed the more she deeply knows that. We see the glory of God come out as we behold him in our marriages as husbands and wives. In our families, we start to see glimpses of the glory that's in there, starting to peek out, like, like shining out. In our workplace, so all those good things, you go, man, look at that guy loving his bride. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus in him. Look at that. Those parents, man, they're just, they're so patient with their, yeah, that's Jesus in them. Seeing that guy work, he's like, man, I, you know, I, I haven't got that raise. I haven't got this I deserve, but man, I'm just going to, I know God has me. Whoa, that's not you, man, because I know you. That's the Jesus in you coming out. And it's slowly revealed, and it's revealed more and more and more, the more that you behold Christ. So thinking about Jesus, knowing Jesus, and meditating on Jesus not only starts to become easier, it starts to become actually desirable and enjoyable. And instead of, well, what happens is, as you begin to look upward, always looking at Christ, the things that are above, what happens to you, and this has been happening to me more and more, you can't help but start looking forward to Christ returning, to see the full expression of everything again. Sometimes that's waiting for the full expression of my children, right? Really bad parenting experience. Oh, Lord, return now so that you can see the glory that is not present right now, right? And sometimes it's you, but that's the truth. When Jesus shows up, it's going to be like, bam! Look what has been in there. But it can come out slowly now. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you will understand that it's not about beholding rules or beholding spiritual traditions, but it's beholding Christ himself. And you will discipline, you will fight for that. Not for the appearance of religion or holiness, but for the holiness that is in Christ himself that's dwelling in there and we'll begin to see it come out. That is beautiful and glorious. Let us always be known as a church that's flattered about that. Amen?